Welcome to season two of The Unforgiving 60 with your hosts, Ben Pronk and Tim Curtis. Two ex-SAS guys armed with MBAs. In this show, Ben and Tim seek out people leading lives less ordinary and talk with them about how they fill their unforgiving minutes and what helps them go always a little further. Welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcasts. G'day, ladies and gentlemen, and g'day, Tim. G'day, Ben. Our guest this week is Mark Mexham. At 14 years of age, Mark was raped by two men he trusted. For 22 years, he harbored that secret, but has recently faced it full on and has not only overcome his personal demons, but has championed a cause which is much bigger than himself aimed at spreading awareness and creating a platform where people can come forward and start addressing these sorts of issues. Yeah, It is heavy, be warned, but it is also absolutely inspiring, be warned. Let's get on with the show. And welcome to the Unforgiving 60 podcast. I'm Tim Curtis with my co-host, Ben Pronk. Hello, Tim. And Ben in the studio. Today, we're joined by Mark Mexham from Community Courage. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Um, difficult conversation today, and I'm actually not sure where to start. So, <laughs> yep. Being paralyzed with that, could we start wherever you want to start? Absolutely. 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 I had a breakfast um, meeting uh, last week and I had a similar type of conversation where I had to start off and say, it's, it's one of these subjects that um, isn't uh, an easy conversation for people to have, um, uh, but it's an important conversation for people to have. So um, if I, I'll probably start off about what drove me, you know, about the community courage process. So um, for context, community courage is what I look at as being like the light at the end of the tunnel, and that's where we're at now, which is, which is awesome. Um, but it was a bit of a journey to get there. So uh, it all, it's kind of all started from my own, uh, my own incident of child sexual abuse. So um, I, was a, I was a very keen uh, young soccer player, come from a, uh, a family, um, a very soccer Orientated family, you know, my dad was a, a semi-professional, etc. So a lot of focus on our families around soccer, and our weekends were spent playing soccer. Um, mm. Most weekends, multiple games, um, which was great. Um, but I had the opportunity when I was fourteen to go on a, a soccer camp, which was a selection camp for um, the Western Australian Junior Soccer Under 15s team. So it was a great opportunity, um, and wanted to um, wanted to make the most of the opportunity. So. Um, it was two nights, three days, two nights, um, and it was at a, at a local um, school. It was in school holidays. So it was at a, a local boarding school in Perth, and, and a lot of kids from from around WA, um, around the fourteen years age uh, of age, come together, select, uh, try out, try to get in the state team. So, I suppose that's where that's where um, this, the real guts of the story starts. <laughs> so, uh, busy busy couple of days, um, you know. Working on on training, tryouts, playing soccer games, that type of stuff. Um, first night went through with no incident. Second night um, we had finished, um, and I was kind of called into this this room. Um, it was a medical treatment room. So, kind of fourteen years old, get into this medical treatment room, and there's a a guy by the name of Graham, really obese, kind of large guy, um, who was the trainer for the squad. Uh, he was over on the left hand side, next to a treatment table. 
And then over uh, under a window, there was the head coach. He was an older guy, um, you know, early 60s type. Um, he was sitting on a chair reading a newspaper. So a bit strange when I walked in, didn't really know what was, was going on. It was just me and these two guys. Um, and uh, Graham goes, it's, uh, it's, you know, we're going to give you a rub down, jump up on the, on the table. So, you know, being a 14-year-old um, kid, I didn't really know what was going on, but I didn't feel, I didn't feel right, mm-hmm. you know. So I kind of... Bearing in mind that these are like these are guys that are in charge of whether you make the team the or selections. not, you know, yeah. you know, you know, you know, I would have loved to go and thought, just go, you know, piss off when I'm out kind of thing. But yeah. you know, you want to, you feel like you're doing the right thing. They're authoritarian positions, you know, yeah. they're you know, in a powerful position, and, and they're adults, right? And you're you're a kid, so so I said um, uh, respectfully, I said, look, I I don't need a rub down. I've stretched. I'm feeling good. I'll I'll be fine. But thank you. Um, the, uh, Graham, he goes, no, no, come on, jump up on the table, take your shorts off, take your t-shirt off, and jump up. And I'm going, oh, I don't, don't think, I, don't think I need to, you know. And at that stage, the um, the head coach kind of looks over his newspaper and just goes, get on the table, and then put his newspaper back up. And I thought, shit, I gotta, I gotta do this, right? This is <laughs> this is a selection coach. It must be normal. Maybe I'm overacting. So, you know, so I kind of I jumped up, took my shirt, um, shorts off, was in my jocks, kind of laid down on this table, and. As soon as I laid down on that table, I realised I was in uh, I was I was in trouble. Right, it didn't feel right. So, um, and and what's happened is this this guy's kind of he's got this bottle of oil, um, and he's kind of just I suppose splattered it over my legs. And you know, even though when at fourteen you don't really know much about sports massages <laughs> and stuff, but you kind of know that that's not right. You <laughs> that's know? not how you do it. <laughs> that's not yeah. how you do it, right? Um, so he's done that, and then you know, just within kind of. 10 seconds really um he's then kind of pulled my jocks back and he's put his hands inside and, and basically grabbed my private areas um at that stage i've kind of i've freaked out i've gone to sit sit up um with his other hand he's just slapped my face and pushed it back down right so i remember laying there pretty confused pretty scared um and looking at this head coach kind of at the on the on the chair and he got up and I thought, he's put his paper down, he's got up and I thought, oh, this is good, I'm going to, it's not a great situation, this is pretty fucked, right? But, but he's going to come across, he's going to see this and he's going to go, well, that's not right, you know, stop it. And he's going to kind of save me, I suppose, yeah. is what I was thinking at the time. But it wasn't the case. He he was part of it and, um, you know, he kind of held my head down and, and, you know, over a space of like a 30-minute period, um, you know, they basically molested me, um, penetrated me and, and, you know, and it was not a... Not great, uh, a great process, that's for sure. But um, I kind of dissociated a fair bit through that process. Um, and I, I've still got memories, but, you know, I try to block stuff out and I kind of don't get into more detail than that yeah. when I talk about it. But, um, you know, it was one of those things where it felt like forever, right? It was, yeah. and, and all you've got to do as a, as a kid, uh, as a 14-year-old, and this is stuff that I suppose I know, I know now. Mm-hmm. I didn't know then, but you've only got so many tools in your toolbox, right? <laughs> so you kind of you're laying there and you're, and you're trying to search for what, what do I do? You know what 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 what's going on? You know, is this my fault? Have I done something wrong? Et cetera, et cetera. And, and you just kind of go down the rabbit hole, and that's that's kind of um, what happened in that in that kind of half hour period. I, I just went down the rabbit hole, mm-hmm. um, and in the end. This guy, this Graham guy, has kind of walked me back to the dorm. All the other kids were in bed. It was getting ready for bedtime. Um, and I remember him kind of just putting me in the bottom bunk, putting the, throwing the doona over me and, and kind of walking out. And as he's walking out, you know, he's kind of joking with other kids and, you know, saying goodnight, sweet dreams, this kind of stuff. And I just remember sitting there going, what has just happened? Or I just, mm. I was just so confused about it all. So um, it was that, that night kind of went for ages. <laughs> that night never really, because the next day, 
you know, it was back on the bus, back to home, back to see my parents and, my, you know, and, and still, I can still remember being on that trip going, what happened? You know, what was that? Um, and then I convinced myself that I convinced myself that I was weak, that I didn't fight back, you know, and, and kind of, you know, you say, look, you know, you should have, you should have ran, you should have fought, you know, in your mind you go, you know, you should have done something, you know, yeah. um, instead of just kind of freezing in that space and, and, and just kind of, um, I suppose, letting it happen to a certain extent. But, you know, that's one of the things I've had to learn is that I was 14 years old, um, you know, I was a little kid, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, there were two adults, uh, you know, they were in positions of power. There was no way I could afford them anyway. Um, and one of the things I've learned over my lifetime is that, you know, freezing in that kind of situation is a normal response to trauma, right? Yeah. So, yeah. You know, yeah. so, um, so kind of after that incident, I, I kind of got to a point where I, I remember looking at my dad and, and kind of saying, thinking, I want to tell you about it. But my biggest concern was that if I told, in my mind, I'm going, if I tell dad, he's probably going to, you know, potentially kill these guys, right? And then he'll be in jail when you go, well, then I'm responsible for my my brother's not having a dad, right? And then, mm. you know, he's the money earner, then he's he's in jail, we've got no money, then mum's got to work harder and then everyone's going to hate you and you know, that kind of stuff. And yeah. it's all those kind of um, planning and isolation type things, you know, as a 14-year-old yep. kid. And, and you don't have, you know, because you don't feel like you can talk about it, you don't have the ability to get advice and, and understand that it's actually it's normal reaction and that type of stuff. So, um, so that kind of kicked me off on this process as, as instead of talking about it, I externalized, I internalized it all. Um, you know, I ran off to the army at 17, trying to prove to myself, um, that didn't really go to plan, but after the army, I worked in correct services, trying to prove myself in uh, high risk response stuff. Then, yeah. then went on to trying to make more money through commercial aspect, you know, getting jobs, um, you know, that just seemed to be what I thought I needed to do to prove myself. Yeah. Um, um, you know, going overseas and things like that. And then you go, in the, end of the day, you can run as much as you want, but you're taking your baggage with you, right? <laughs> so, yeah. you know, and that's the, that's the biggest lesson I've learned in the last kind of couple of, uh, couple of years is that you can run as far as you can want. You can try to run, as way, uh, run away and hide and, and mask everything. But in the, the day, it's in, it's in your head and it's something you're going to deal with. And so I take it over this period, as, as you're running, as you're proving yeah. or attempting to prove things to yourself, you, you told no one? No, no one, no. Was there a catalyst to deciding enough is enough yeah. and I, I need to face this head on, I need to tell? Yeah, absolutely there was, yeah. So um, I've, I'm very fortunate. I've got three kids that, 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 are, that are awesome and I love very much. Um, uh, married um, now, you know, my ex-wife at the time, my wife at the time and now my ex-wife obviously. But um, the catalyst was I realised that my behaviour wasn't benefiting my family and, and, and by I mean my behaviour, what I mean by that is... I take my my nine year old daughter to a birthday party and I don't want to leave. You know, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, I uh, uh, someone comes up and talks to one of my kids at the park and I go, I get, uh, I'm on the, on the on the offensive. I'm, hey, what yeah. are you doing? What are you talking to? And they, and uh, I suppose having you know worked in the correctional services environment, <laughs> this type of stuff, you you then reinforce this type of stuff because you're dealing with you know pedophiles and sexual offenders and stuff at work. And then you've got your own history, and then everyone to me in my eyes become a potential pedophile, potential yep. pedophile yep. right? Which was going to impact my kids and, and that kind of stuff. So that behaviour that that was becoming really ingrained in my everyday um, operating style <laughs> um, mm. was impacting my family, um, and it got to the point where it resulted in divorce and, and separation. And, and it, that was the point. That was a catalyst for me because I kind of. Um, 
I always used to think that, you know, one thing I could get right was being a dad, you know, and, and, and the family was, it was what it's all about for me, right? So, and then I found myself separated, not with, you know, my wife and kids and, and kind of just went, oh, I've really got to do something about this. So I, hit, I, hit, I hit rock bottom, right? Um, you know, I was, uh, I was having suicidal thoughts and, and, you know, I was hitting the bottle and that type of stuff um, because I wasn't dealing with it, you yeah. know? Um, so then I thought, uh, it's, I've got two choices. And, and I remember thinking, you know, um, one path is just I continue on this, this cycle and this process that I've always done, which is avoidance and trying to replace it with something else mm-hmm. um, or actually just deal with it. And that was probably the most scariest thing for me of all time, you know, is actually accepting that you have to deal with it. And by dealing with it, it means you got to tell people what happened to you. So, and it was 20, 22 years before I told them the first person, which was my ex-wife. Uh, yeah. I'm I'm trying to process it. I mean, yeah. I'm a I'm a male. I've been in that 14 year old sporting environment. Yep. I'm a parent of three. The story makes me feel. I don't know. It's a mixture of things: mm. upset, yep. ill, angry, scared. You internally just dealt with this for twenty-two years. Did anyone assist you directly in just getting over the threshold to be able to tell the story? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, you know, it was really interesting, and it's is a guy that you both know. Um, is a close mate of mine, and um, you know, spent a lot of time in, in the regiment, and mm. um, is a guy that I really look up to in relation to um, you know uh, what he's achieved in his in his military career and that type of stuff. And I remember he was one of the first people I actually spoke to after my wife about this, and we're kind of sitting down, having a beer, and I just said, "Man, this is what happened to me when I was younger." Like, and he just goes, "It was like obviously you can imagine," and, I, yeah. and but it was the response that he. It was this response where we just started talking as a mate, right? It was just it was just two blokes having a chat about it, and there was no there was no judgment. He didn't turn around and say, "Oh, you, you weak bastard," you know, like you yeah, know, yeah. What, you know, what, you know. It was it was just pure um, conversation between two blokes, and that was one of the things that made me realise that oh, actually that wasn't as bad as I thought it would be, right? Mm. You know, like um, and and then it was slowly, incrementally, just that circle of trust, just slowly talking to more people, my brother. Um, and and getting the the response that was completely different to what I thought it would be in my mind, you know, in my mind I thought people were going to go, oh mate, catch you later, you know, like you know, yeah. <laughs> well, why didn't you fight? Why didn't you, you know, why didn't you talk earlier, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But there's none of that, and that's probably the one of the biggest lessons I've learned throughout all of this is that there's actually a lot of good people in the world, right? Yeah. Mm, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you spend all your time focusing on the on the small percentage of of evil, negative, bad people. But once you start opening up your eyes a little bit more, it's, there's, there's a lot of good people out there that, that will help you, you know. So mm. that's uh, it's an important piece to remember. It's funny. Yeah, you probably had the upside-down view. I, I'm a believer yeah. that 98% in the people, uh, 98% of people in the world are good, yep. do the right thing, are law-abiding, that are decent. But perhaps you had the alternate yeah. view yeah. that well, 98%. <laughs> I was going to say, you can understand and experience yeah, like absolutely. that. And then, but, yeah, you know, yeah. you talk about people working in correction, police officers are yeah. often dealing just with yeah. a really small percentage of population, but they're seeing so much of it yeah, that well, it's consumed. 100% of their yeah. 2%. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly right. Yeah. And, and you fo- it's easy to focus on the negative because the negative is shocking, right? So you don't mm. necessarily focus on the people that are walking, you know, smiling, saying good day, engaging, being polite. 
but someone comes down the street that's yelling and, and abuse at people, it's what catches your eye. Yeah. And so it's, um, yeah, it's important to realise that, yeah. So I was looking at your CV. Yeah. And it's a series of jobs, no real career, but yep. a series yep. of jobs. And you did six years in the military, yep. perhaps come back to that in a little while, and then a succession of two years, three years, yeah. eight months, nine months, three years. Yep. Was this causal yeah, to that? Yeah, it's it's really it's a really interesting observation because again, Kim, who I'll call her Kim, not my ex-wife, because you know she, we're still very close. Um, <laughs> but uh, it sounds, <laughs> but, but Kim and I moved. I think it was fourteen houses in eleven years. Um, and one of the big factors when I talk about my behaviour um, and the impact on the family was was that I was always constantly on the move. Um, and I got told by. Um, by an old mentor of mine, um, John George, who he kind of said, Look, you, you've got to be careful because you're going through your life achievement, like you're just going for objectives. And he goes, you're just leaving this trail of relationships. You're not actually harnessing relationships in your life. You're just going to next objective, next objective. And he goes, you need to stop and actually um, celebrate success with your team. Like, don't just hit an objective and then go off to another one because you just, you know, you got to be wary of that. And it was interesting, mm-hmm. a point. At the time, I was like, okay, John, yeah, no worries. And, and off I went, right? <laughs> but, but now it, it makes sense, right? It, yeah. it does make sense. So, um, yeah, I've always been on the move. Um, and this is uh, probably the first time, you know, in my whole adult life where I, I feel like I don't need to run because there's no secrets anymore, right? Mm. There's, um, there's definitely no secrets. So, <laughs> so you've, you've dealt with this for 22 years. You've, you've come mm. to that moment where you think, no, make or break. Yep. And you've done what I think is an awe-inspiring level of bravery to, to have start that conversation. Yeah. From there, did you did you have a plan? Did you have a general idea of where you wanted to head or yeah. has things since there it's kind of evolved organically? That's an interesting one. So I I found that I, I had the conversation with the inner circle of people that I, that I really trusted and, and – and then I went on this kind of, uh, it, it, it almost exemplified my feelings once I talked about them because you've been pushing them. I kind of talk like a jack-in-a-box. You, you're keeping the jack-in-a-box spring down so long, right? And then it's up and it's bobbling its head around and you're going, oh, it's out. Um, so trying to deal with it. And then I went on this this kind of um, interesting approach where I didn't want to go to the police because I didn't have much faith in the justice system in Australia. Um, did, did you want revenge? I like, did. Was that There was a thing that, I did. yeah. I wanted revenge. And I actually went on this journey where, um, so for 18 months, I did my own investigation into into these, these two guys. Um, and with one of them, which Graham, the main offender, um, his trail ended and I couldn't get past 2012. I couldn't find where he went. But interesting that he threw, it was all open source, um, you know, review, it was all lawful investigation. But um, interesting that this guy, you know, uh, was employed by the, you know, the, the government to this soccer coach. Um, he already had three years prior, three charges of masturbating in public on his record. Mm-hmm. Um, he's then moved. Um, so just for a point of clarity, um, we were meant to go on that state soccer selection camp uh, tour. So we, I got the, made the team. Didn't want to go, but yeah. <laughs> but it was um, we meant to go to Japan at the end of the year. Um, two months out, it all got cancelled, and my parents weren't told anything about it. But it turns out, and I'm alleging, and, and I'm sure it will come out that um, that at that time these two guys were charged with possession of child pornography, and and my um, position is that's why the camp was cancelled. But um, yet to be proven. But that's yep. my opinion. Um, 
So I found, I chased one of the guys to Queensland. He moved to Queensland and he got charged again with possession of child pornography over there. Um, and that's kind of, then his, his kind of track ended. And, I, and it turns out he's actually deceased. He died. So that makes sense now, but I spent a lot of time. I wish I knew that back then because I <laughs> spent a lot of time yeah. chasing him. This other guy um, was a bit different. WA-based, um, has an extensive history of um, child molestation, child abuse, um, has served two custodial sentences um, for uh, raping um, children under the age of 15. Um, and his last, you know, one of the one of the last ones was it was a historical cha- uh, historical charge already raping a twelve year old boy, and he got six months jail. Um, and I'm kind of looking at this going, so how's that how's that measure up, right? So, I I wanted to go down that track a little bit further. So over a course of eighteen months, I located him. Um, uh, I was able to kind of through a whole heap of different open source. Um, uh, bits of intel I was about to identify where he was in in the suburb. Then he tried to sell a motorbike helmet on Gumtree, and in the back of that was a picture of his garden. So searched on Google Earth through the suburb, located his house, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I found myself going through this whole process of doing reconnaissance on his house, and you know, then I set up a, a, a fake profile of a fourteen-year-old boy, um, and I connected with people around him with this alias. Um, you know, it was, a, it was a process of bringing it closer. And then I woke up one morning and there's a message on my 14-year-old boy um, Facebook account from this guy saying, you're very young and handsome, you're beautiful, um, you, know, what, you know, what's your story? Because I'd actually connected with the church that he goes to as well. So we uh, had this exchange of, uh, of comms um, and it was probably about six weeks and it got down to the point where I'd actually arranged to meet him. He was going to come pick me up from my, my fake house um, where I was staying with, you know, uh, boarding boarding with this kind of religious family that was through church and stuff. And I apologise to whoever those people are. They're real people, but, you know, it was, <laughs> it was appropriate at the time. But um, so I got to the point where it was a Wednesday night. Um, I had planned this, um, I suppose, meet with this guy. He was going to come pick up this 14-year-old boy and it was going to be me. And I hadn't told anyone about this at, at all. Um, and I I was on this this... It kind of it just all fell together, and I thought this is perfect. Right? This is now it's not going. This is my chance. This is, he's going to rock up. I'm not 14 anymore. I don't. I. 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 You know. I feel like I can handle myself a lot differently than when I was 14, and I can finally deal with this. And um, it was a Wednesday afternoon, and I had my kids with me, and I thought to myself, I don't know how I'm going to react when I when I see him. And he's an old man now, right? Yeah. So, you know, it's there's. Um, you know, there's no, there's no threat there. there. There's no intimidation there. It's just a sad old man that's ruined a whole period of a kid's life. So um, I, I started talking. I thought, I need to talk to someone. Again, planning in isolation, right? So <laughs> you know, I need to talk to someone. So I called my brother and I said, mate, this is what I've done. This is what I'm going to do tonight. And he goes, don't be a dickhead. Go to the police. Stop, stop, you know, stop. Stop, stop, stop. So, um, and it's what I needed. And I think that's why I called him, right? Because I knew that's what he was going to say. And I thought, mm, okay. Yeah. So instead of meeting... Um, on the Wednesday, I walked in the um, Junot Police Station and I was handed over all my files of, of everything that I'd been working on and I made my formal complaint about the historical charge. So, And that was about um, yeah, eight, eight months ago now. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. And so you mentioned at that stage you didn't have much faith in the criminal justice system when you said he had been convicted for raping a 12-year-old boy yep. and got six months. Correct. I'm still trying to process yes. that. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
so you, you've handed these files over. Yeah. W- what happened from there? Yeah, so um, it, was, it was a really interesting kind of... I, I, I base my uh, kind of lack of faith in the justice system. I don't think we have a justice system. I think we have a legal system. Um, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I base that on having worked in the custody centres. And um, I did a stint when I was running the Supreme Court Custody Centre in WA. Um, and the amount of people I used to take up that were high-risk offenders that would be absolute arseholes in the cells, that would you know be disgusting humans in the cells. And you get them up in front of the jury and they'd, jack, they'd change, right? Mm-hmm. They, they become this well-presented, articulate kind of person. And um, and through that process, I remember um, having a, a child sex offender in there. And I knew he was a convicted child sex offender because I had his rap sheet. So I knew he'd spent time before in jail for similar charges. And I was waiting because we have to sit with them if they're at risk of, you know, of um, escape or whatever. You mm-hmm. kind of you sit with them and you listen to the whole process. And I remember thinking, when are they going to bring up the fact that he's done it before? You know, mm. <laughs> I'm thinking like, surely, because you've got the jury looking at this guy and, and he's presenting really like like a gentle guy, you know, and he's, he's a, I've, I've, you know, a member of community and I've done this charity work and all this type of stuff. And then, then I, I was speaking to a lawyer after and I go, why didn't, why couldn't they bring it up? We go, oh, they can't bring it up unless it's directly related to this case. So you can have a child sex offender that's spent multiple times in, in prison, but the jury for this matter can't know about that because it's not directly related and, and it's a prejudice to him if they know about it. It's a bias. So you kind of... It's all these kind of little things mm-hmm. that come up in the mind. And, and then I remember taking a guy that um, killed a um, his stepson with a cut-off bit of hose for wetting the bed, beat him repeatedly until um, he died of his internal wounds. And he got six years prison. And I remember thinking, he was a toddler, right? So that kid mm-hmm. wouldn't have been nine before... And you're in and out for that. And so... Again, it's it's my own bias around the, the system, mm. and then um, you kind of think, well, where's the justice? You know, like mm. the, it's really lacking. So, and then you kind of go to the fact that I found it very hard to even walk into Juno Light Police Station myself, right? And I've worked in with cops heaps. I've yeah. worked, you know, and I found it intimidating. Uh, and and then you think, well, you know, what about other people that have had no exposure to working with the police? Um, you know that that um, you know that uh, it's a really intimidating process for them to walk in and then when you walk in I, I walked in and I said the lady there was four people in the in the uh, waiting room <laughs> and she goes um, what are you here for and I go I'm oh, sorry correction she goes oh can I help you I said yeah I'm here to um, report a matter and she goes what's the matter I said it's a historical child sex abuse matter and kind of everyone stops looking looking at you yeah. and she and she goes and what's your relationship with the victim <laughs> and I go, mm. oh well, god I, I am the victim right and and it was just weird kind of process yeah. you go people would have walked out by now yeah. you know yeah and, and it's all in the meantime these guys are committing these these crimes right mm. so it's it's making it very easy for these for these guys to continue in this um this in the shadows doing what they do because reporting about it is really hard and intimidating talking about it's really hard um and we're getting a lot better in society about talking about this type of stuff mm-hmm. which is awesome but it's still it still can be hard to have the conversation right um so it's kind of the uh, that's kind of the, the whole community courage aspect is around you know a platform for people to feel like they can learn how to talk to talk about it they can use the the platform to just listen to other people's stories which sometimes that's that that's part of their healing process you know they, they don't want to talk about it themselves but they want to listen to someone else that's been through it and get some type of you know, you know internal healing from that. And don't feel it's, so alone, I ex- suppose. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah.
Now, given what you'd seen before in the legal system, mm. what were your concerns when you handed that file across yeah. to the police? Yeah, I, I, in hindsight, I should have probably um, cleaned up my files a little bit before I handed it over. <laughs> but it was it was the emotion behind it all. It was that um, it was the fact that I wasn't planning on going to the police station that night. I was planning on meeting this guy, yeah. and then it was now nah, I got to got to sort this because I thought once. Once the police know me and know who I am, I then can't commit any crime. Not that I was going to do anyway, but I can't approach him. I can't yeah. do anything because they know who I am, right? And so it was almost like this is a release. But my concern was that they were going to turn around and go, You're a vigil- you've been a vigilante activity, you've been mm-hmm. harassing this guy, you know, even though he didn't know I was there, you mm-hmm. know, all that type of stuff. Um, and I suppose that I did get some advice throughout the process, um, having some friends that are ex- ex-police officers, but it was that cryptic conversation, you know, what would happen and you know, <laughs> hypothetically. Yeah, hypothetically, if someone had had a fake profile, would they, you know, that kind of stuff. So, so I was kind of getting a little bit of steer there, that way. But I actually got to the point where I thought, I don't care. I don't, I legitimately don't care. If you want to take, if you want to take me and say that I've done something wrong by doing this, I'll accept that. And, and it is what it is. And I'll, but the big picture here is like, what is this guy doing? This guy mm. that I have got evidence for that says that he's still actively grooming people has been released from prison provided a low custodial sentence for his last charge because of his age his low risk of reoffending, and the fact that he found god so i've now got you know this alias that has connected through church with this guy this group so it blows it all out you know it, it just clearly shows that they hide behind the goodness of of people that are you know generally yeah. church going um you know families doing doing good things but um, it just blows it all out of the water that, that this guy hasn't changed. But as um, the way that the legal system is, is kind of structured is that he gets the benefit of the doubt over and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Right? And the burden of proof goes on to people that like, like myself and in my situation where I've got to try to evidence, provide evidence from 22 years ago, right? Yes. <laughs> you know? um, and, you know, it's... Uh, with no witnesses. With no witnesses. Exactly right. It was just the way they structure it. Like, they're not silly. You know, they... They structure these situations in a way where they have control and they commit these crimes in the darkness against kids that are voiceless, right? Um, mm. And then when you have to prove that, it's really hard. Mm. So it's... Uh, you use the word revenge, and I, I get the tactical revenge. Yep. I can visualise that. But what does strategic revenge yeah. look like now with community courage? Yeah, that's a really good question. So that, and that is the turning point for me, was that tactically... This guy is an old man, and actually, the crime has been committed on me a long time ago. And I've actually, I've, you know, I've lived with the consequences of that for a long time. So, I always say my cause is bigger than my case because my case is actually just this little section, right? Um, it's big to me, but but he's not my um, strategic enemy, mm. <laughs> right? Mm. He's he's a, he's a piece in the problem, but the the strategic direction is to attack the bigger issue, which is um, is to remove the, I suppose the awkwardness around the conversations, empower people to actually have the conversations with people. Try to educate people that that once you talk about it, you'll be surprised about the support you get. Yeah. You know? Um, so empowering people to come forward and talk and then and really by driving that social change, that's where we're going to get the the actual strategic win. When we create an environment where I can walk out of that room as 14 and know that I can go to my dad and go, mate, this is what happened. Yeah. Or I can go to my mate or a teacher or someone else, you know. Mm. That's the strategy. That's what we need to change. Is. So that's social change? Yes. Judicial change? Yes. Yeah. So there's a few things there, right? 
So um, one of my challenges is to ensure that that the changes that we put in, in that we lobby for in the legislation um, gets the balance because this child sex offending, there's, there's you know, and that shouldn't matter what side of politics you're on. You should want to protect our children. Um, and what I'm finding is it becomes politicised because of certain certain agendas and certain et cetera, et cetera. Community courage needs to, what we want to do is drive the legislative change to be really clear cut. We're a pretty simple approach. We want there to be a transparent child sex offender register or sex offenders register. And what I say about that is because I spent so long searching for these guys, right? Mm. Um, this, this second guy that is a convicted child sex offender has spent two custodial sentences because he's deemed of a low risk of reoffending is in the local um, WA uh, sex offenders register because he's deemed no risk. He lives 300 metres away from a school and he's grooming children online. So um, parents should know what he looks like, you know, and, and I understand the balance is that you don't want to create vigilantes, okay? Mm-hmm. Going out and, and you know, and stringing pedophiles up from the street pole isn't actually going to change anything. It's just going to drive stuff deeper down, mm. right? What we need to do is, is ensure that people are aware of the threat in their suburb, but the balance is ensuring that police resources then aren't spent protecting them because everyone's, you know, acting like in a vigilante approach. Mm. But it's an awareness thing. And what we're finding is recidivism in, in child sex offences is, is through the roof. Mm. Um, so these people are committing crimes again and again, even after they've been caught. So... It's my position that that they've lost their right for anon- uh, to be anonymous in the society. You know, that we people need to be aware of it. Um, so the, the register needs to be uh, lifelong, and it needs to be transparent, um, and it and it needs to be updated. So the ANCOR register at the moment, which is a national um, sex offences register, there's only actually certain people in the police that have access to that register. So you know, even a, a standard police officer can't get access into it. Um, I've heard of situations before where a convicted child sex offender is babysitting people's kids. The police have, you know, the police can't tell you that this person that's babysitting is actually a convicted child sex offender because that's against the legislation. Mm. So, you know, it's, it's just, I don't know what the answer is yet. And we've got a lot mm-hmm. of people that, um, of barristers are very smart lawyers that are doing pro bono work for us, which is amazing, right? But we want to break that down and we want to get that balance because... We don't want to create an environment where it's vigilantes out there, everyone, and these guys are, you know, kind of take law in their own hands. But there's the awareness piece, which is important. Mm. Is there, I know nothing about this, is there a mental health perspective on the offenders that, um, you know, while it is almost impossible to develop a sympathy for, for yeah. people who do this to children, um, clearly if there's a repetitive thing, then then this is probably related to some kind of mental aspect. And are there rehabilitative programs, these kind of things that yeah. can intervene? That's the balance piece as well. And, and that's where, um, you know, we want to reduce reoffending uh, as a society. And when we talk about driving social change, it, it, it is about engaging the community, making people aware, but it's also looking at the problem. Um, so what, from my understanding, the rehabilitation programs are, are pretty poor. Um, and there's probably two elements to when you look at the funding regime that I've come across. Actually, there's three elements. One is in relation to rehabilitation. That doesn't seem to be a program that works. And I think some of the challenges that I've been told are that there's a lot of excellent clinical psychologists and psychiatrists out there 
but there's not actually a lot of them that want to work with these people as well. So there's a gap yeah. there, you know, yeah. um, for, the, for their own reasons and, and et cetera. And, I, and it must be hard, right? So, yeah. um, so that's, a, that's a gap, um, you know, getting, getting people the right skill set to be incentivized to work with these people. I don't know how that looks like, but that's an area. The other one is around the resourcing for the recovery. So we look at, I um, had a tour the other day of the uh, Sexual Assault Resource Centre in Perth, which is a government-run um, facility. And they focus on um, dealing with sexual uh, assault trauma for people. And they are doing amazing stuff. They've got a wait list of 14 months. Wow. You know, so, um, and these people, you know, you, you meet with them and they are busy and they're committed and they're trying to do the right thing, but they're just, they're just saying there's just not enough. There's enough yeah, they're just swamped, right? Mm. Um, and then there's the other side of things with the, with the funding perspective, which is on how we fund the um, sex crime division in WA police. So... Um, I've met with the superintendent and inspector in there and, you know, they are swamped. They've got, they've got piles, piles and piles of historical cases and current cases and absolutely a child that's at risk now needs to be priority, right? So mm-hmm. if there's a current case, if you've got 20 current cases and 100 historical, well, your first 20 are the, are the current, right? But um, their funding is, is pretty poor as well. But then you look at the difference in, um, in relation to the transport division in WA police get funded on the amount of activities they, they conduct. So the amount of tickets they write, the amount of traffic stops they conduct. So my argument, and again, there might, might be people, once you break this down, that it's just a naive approach, but I'm going, well, why don't we do that with the, the sex crime division, right? Mm. The amount of, number of cases that they're getting after um, and the amount of, um, uh, you know, the amount of times that they, they are taking child predators off the streets, we'll give them more money and keep, keep it going, you know? But Again, that's just my naive approach in the moment. I don't see why. Yeah. I'm yet to be convinced that I'm wrong, but um, but that's the funding uh, the funding approach. But yeah, to your point, we need to focus on the fact that these people aren't these people aren't right in the head, right? Mm-hmm. That's the that's the basis. Now, a tough subject, and I've been challenged on this <laughs> a number of times over the last few months, is that people a child there's a high percentage of people that are child sex offenders that were um, assaulted. Child, uh, um, you know, uh, molested as a kid themselves, and my position is that th- that's not that's not great, right? You don't want anyone mm. to be um, assaulted as a yeah, child at a cycle. But I was assaulted, and I haven't assaulted. Mm. Um, uh, there's plenty of people out there that were assaulted as a kid and haven't used that as an excuse of why they've then gone on to a, to commit the assaults themselves. Um, now, I understand there's a mental health aspect to that, um, and I'm not qualified to make a comment on it, but mm. what I do say is I don't see it as an excuse. As an excuse. It's not, a, it's not a, a reasonable excuse of why you've then gone and ruined other children's lives. So it's a factor, mm. absolutely, and it's, it's really it's a negative and it's sad that it happened to you in the first place, but you still have the choice yourself, you know, so... But, it's a, again, it's, it's a complex matter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. When you crossed the Rubicon and started Community Courage, yeah. it seemed like your desired initial desired outcome was really small. You yeah, wanted around about $10,000. You yep. got that in hours. Yep. Now you have a federal politician, a good friend yep. of all of ours, yep. Vince Connolly, behind you. Yes. What have you learnt from starting Community Courage? Yeah, great question. Um, I, was, I was so overwhelmed by it, right? I, I, I was kind of, I realised at the start that, I wanted to do something, but I didn't know what it was. And and I thought that if I could start a charity, and we did a rough financial forecast, 
and it was going to cost about 10 grand to get it all registered and etc. If I could start a charity and we could just look at something, look at doing something, I didn't know what it was. Um, and then it was nine hours and we had over $10,000 and it quickly became a situation where I, I went, like now, what, if we can do that in nine hours, what can we do in nine years, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and then um, it, it got to a position where the support then started coming in. Like, so the financial, I stopped it after we hit the target because I didn't actually want any more money because I didn't know what to do with it. I, mm-hmm. I knew I needed 10 grand to set up the charity. Yep. Yep. Um, but, you know, like, like, limited by objectives. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. <laughs> I'm going, and then I thought, but it was going personally to me as well. So I thought, I don't want to be, you know, this guy that's on, that's got a five hundred thousand dollar, you know, donation pot sitting there, and then you know, I'm going on holiday. It might be pre-planned, <laughs> and all of a sudden, he kind of looks you know, bad. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It looks bad, right? So, um, so yeah. I, I did I, note I, you didn't rock up in a Maserati. So. No, no, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you know, so it got to a point where I thought I need to stop the money, and then we need to get more strategic what we're doing. And what happened really quickly was there was two types of actions that happened. One was the um, the community support that came in and the other one was around the kind of professional support. So, you know, I kind of mentioned before around some of the feedback I had around, you know, going through my career and just like leaving this, you know, just moving on and on and on. Mm. But one of the really magical things that I think is that people from all the jobs that I've had in the past have all connected in with me and offered their unique skill sets, you know, and, and it's kind of these relationships you don't know you really had had formed, you know, um, and people were reaching out and helping up. People saying, oh, I'm you know, a professional bid writer for a company. We used to work together, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I remember you well. I'll, I'll help you write your grant applications. You go, really? Like, so big lesson for me, accept help, yes. you know, <laughs> which is, again, which is not something I'm used to doing. So, um, so all that support come in. But then this wave of personal type um, response came in. So, you know, I think I had over 400 messages, emails and texts within the first probably the first month. And some of that stuff was really full on. Um, I found myself getting emotional reading it mm-hmm. um, and people were just being so genuine. And and I had this moment where I was going, like, do they know it's, like, people know it's just, it's me sitting in my lounge room, kind of, you know, like, yeah. I, like I, I didn't want to give the perception that I was um, going to be able to provide some type of wisdom, you know, because I was still processing this stuff myself, really. But what I found was, People actually aren't after wisdom. They just want to share their stories, you know, mm-hmm. and, and they want to know that it's a, it's it's genuine and it's not um, something that's going to be judged, you know. And people have just reached out with phenomenal stories of resilience, right? Yeah. Um, you know, it's phenomenal. And you just you're, you're reading it and you're going, you know, for you to get through all of this, like mine's well, mine was a once-off um, incident with two people that I didn't know. Um, so they automatically become the enemy in the situation yeah. from all of your friends and family and everything, right? You've got some of these people that it's a family member, mm. you know? Um, and repeated. And repeated over and over and over again. Um, I've got a, a, a lady that um, is uh, has come on board as a cultural advisor for Community Courage, and, and she's more than happy for me to share this um, story because she shares it herself openly. But um, she was raped by her uncle when she was 12, and she was kind of in a position where she was brought in and, and the family dealt with it in their way, in, in that cultural specific way. Um, but then it goes, business goes on as usual for the, for the family unit. And then, you, you know, you're in a position where you're actually interacting with this person in a, in a social family setting over and over again. And you're just told to move on you know? <laughs> uh, and you kind of go, wow. And, 
and you kind of the resilience to get through that and mm. uh, and to uh, be a productive success story as well. That these a lot of these people um, have been driven positively into achieving great things through through that drive that they've got. Mm. Unfortunately, it doesn't go like that for everyone. Yeah. Um, but I think what we want to do in community courage. I know what we want to do in community courage is is really evidence the success stories. So people that potentially aren't in the best space of where they've been can hopefully get that comparison. Have a look at what yeah. right might look like. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Because it's you hear a lot of times where, you know, people have gone downhill, become addicted to drugs, criminal, whatever it might be. Um, and unfortunately, if they never share what's happened to them in the past, they get written off as just, you know, yeah. just a bad person. But you go... Um, you know, there's there's a lot more to a lot more to some of these people that you know you can see an, an alcoholic on the street, um, you know, that's living homeless. But something's happened, right? There's mm. a reason why that person has gone down that path. Um, it's not always sexual assault, but it's mental health issues and all this type of stuff. And I think the more you talk about it, the more you can kind of help those those type of situations. So, but people need to see success. Yeah. You know? a, a couple of questions about how we can help. Yes. So the, the first one, w- what if you are the recipient or on the other end of a conversation, yeah. someone's opened up about something like this? Um, it, as you've mentioned before, it can be very confronting. It's likely the person doesn't know how you're going to react. Yeah. I can almost guarantee you probably won't know how you'll react yourself. Yeah. Um, what what would be your advice for someone hearing that from a, a friend or a colleague? Yeah, that's yeah, a great question. And and what one of the things we found is that that there's been a lot of movement in that uh, that RUK and that, and that engaging piece, which is so good, right? Yeah. It's it, a lot of people are actually engaging. Um, and I noticed this year with RUK, they focused on the RUK. No, I'm not. Or what do I do the now? Follow up, yeah. the follow up right? <laughs> yes. Because there's been plenty of times, and and I've um, I think it's really important when you look at the early engagements with people. So, and I, I talk about um, my friend before that we were speaking about. Mm. If he had turned around to me and had a, a well, if that was a negative experience for me, yep. I wouldn't have gone on to the next stage. And that's not that's that's a lot of pressure to put on someone that doesn't know that you're about to over a beer tell them that you know you're raped as a child. <laughs> you know what I mean? So um, it's it's a really important thing. So what I say to people now is that you don't actually have to do much. You just have to say that to people that you know, we'll work through this together, right? That's mm. they, it's, it's it's awesome that you've told me and shared it with me. You know, I don't know. Nothing wrong with saying, "What the fuck do I do now?" Like, yeah. I, I don't know what to do. Wow, you know, like. Yeah. Um, but you go, all right. Well, let's let's get through this together. What and talk? What, what do you want to do? Because some people just want to. It's like that turtle head out of a shell. They come come forward. They say something, and then they want to go back in the shell and then go away, right? And mm-hmm. and there's nothing wrong with that. It's it's because it's up to whichever way the person wants to deal with it themselves. But my my advice is that there's actually no wrong way to respond as long as it's just genuine and and you're caring, right? And you just you just offer help. And you can't sometimes that's all you need someone mm-hmm. to believe you and go actually yeah I believe you right that's and that's and I don't know what we're gonna do but we got this right yeah yeah to <laughs> you know? be there yeah and then reach out to the professionals because yeah. you know there's some amazing people out there that have committed their lives to understanding how our minds work mm-hmm. um you know and I don't think everyone's gonna fully understand how our minds work 100 percent but these people have got just training skills and understanding about how to structure the process for dealing with stuff um and one of the things is that there's there's actually a lot of unique services out there that um 
that are tailored more to certain circumstances as well. So, yeah. um, you know, soldiers and sirens, for example, they're, they're really ta- tailored to that um, law enforcement, first responders, military response. And so their service is tailored to understanding more around what those people have gone through to lead mm. to the situation. Mm. And then you've got um, SARC, for example, in WA, Sexual Assault Resource Centre, like they've got an immediate response unit that will deal with um, anyone that's been assaulted in the first two weeks. Um, and, and so there's there's these niche services out there that aren't, aren't necessarily well known. Yeah. So one of the things on the Community Courage website that we're building is that kind of almost like a choose your own adventure style, yep. like a process map of, okay, so someone's come to you and you and or, or you want to go somewhere and this is where you're at now. These are some of the choices you may consider. You know, you may consider... You know, are you from uh, law enforcement background? Reach out to these people, or mm-hmm. um, maybe consider um, this online resource because you're going back to that people learning in different ways through yeah. watching videos, reading a manual, talking that type of stuff. We want to deliver that as well. So, hey, give different options for people. Yeah. Not everyone wants to go meet face to face. You yeah. know, someone wants to grab a book, go sit out in the garden, and go right. What? <laughs> how, how can I deal with this? So, um, we want to build that database and but we don't want to reinvent the wheel because at Community yeah. Courage, we're not, we're not psychologists, we're not psychiatrists. Mm-hmm. Um, we're a platform for people to reach out and, and be that conduit to, to, the, to those services that are out there um, and make people feel like they're not alone, right? Yeah. So, mm. And we'll, we'll definitely provide the links in the, the show notes oh, to awesome. both Community uh, Courage and some of those services that Great. you advocate. <laughs> My follow-up question, we've spoken about if someone comes to you and, yes. and confides in you. What about as parents? Now, you yeah. mentioned that these uh, child sex offenders are very cunning. They're often repeat offenders. They've got very good at making situations where it's hard to identify what they've done. Are there any warning signs we should be looking out for, any recommended actions as a parent you might take if you think something might have happened to your child? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 really important. So. My first bit of advice in that space is to the parents that that think they have this superhuman power that they should have known that there was something wrong, right? Um, and, you know, you talk to my mum, for example, and, and she's like, oh, I should have picked up on things, I should have known. There's no way. I, I did not want anyone to know what happened. There was no way anyone was finding out. Mm. Um, some of my behaviours changed. You know, mm. I got more fights at school, I kicked out of school in the end, you know, wanted to run off and join the army at 17 and I look at my fo- myself in the photos there and I go, what were you thinking, champion? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, should stay with mum. Um, but, you know, behaviours started to change. Right? Um, mm. but, but then the, the challenge is, is that just a teenage boy that's progressing through the teenage boy years or the teenage girl years and rebelling, and, and which is also normal. It doesn't actually mean that they've had an incident that's occurred. Um, so the biggest thing is don't be hard on yourself if you do find out later that, that something has occurred. Yeah. Um, but I think the, 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 the number one challenge for us is that social change, which is, is driving the ability for people to realise that they can speak about it. Um, and so parents, is about having those conversations with your kids um, about anything, right? About being open and, um, and knowing that you can, they can have that conversation um, in, a, in a way that, you know, that isn't judgmental and, and you're there to protect them, which is hard because, um, you know, kids are complex as they are. Yeah. So I mean, my, my oldest daughter's 10 um, and I'm seeing, you know, a change in her, uh, her approach to life, right? <laughs> so, you know, I'm not allowed to uh, walk to a classroom anymore, that type of stuff. But, um, but it's about just creating that relationship and keeping the dialogue going. Yeah, um, okay. uh, and 
But on the flip side, it's around the more that we drive that social change and have those open conversations, it shrinks the power for these predators. It's removing that power that they have. Um, because I've said in, in the past that their biggest power is their ability to socially isolate their victims. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I truly believe that because once you socially isolate someone from their support networks, then then you know you're limiting as a as a predator you're limiting your chance of being caught because you know they're not going to talk about it so if people can feel like they can talk about it then you're removing that power a little bit by a little bit so mm-hmm. but that they like you say they are cunning and they there's a reason why they set up those those positions and those scenarios and it's intimidation and it's 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 very planned um you know and these guys these two for example in my situation have done it time and time again mm-hmm. um and again, you, one of the lessons I've learned is you can't be too hard on yourself for however long it takes you to come out. Because, yeah. you know, I felt sick reading articles of these guys reoffending. you know, mm-hmm. because you go, you know, if, if, if I had come earlier, if I talked about it earlier, maybe that would not that would have stopped yeah. them and that type of stuff. And you go, in the day, you can't, you can't do that. You need to go, when it was right for me, I did it. And, but now I want to make up for that as well, right? Mm-hmm. So I want to... I want to make sure that we drive that social change and we drive the fact that kids can talk openly about it. And, um, you know, like I said before, it's not about these two guys anymore. It's about all of them. Um, mm. So hmm. Often, I did say I wanted to circle back to time in the military, yeah. and, and often we see people who have challenges, yeah. some form of trauma, problems in their childhood do seek yeah. um, solace by joining the military. I think you said when you joined the army and you did six years and yep. it didn't go so well, yep. quote unquote. Yep. <laughs> Why didn't it go so well? Yeah, good question. So um, I suppose I ran off to join the army again to prove to myself. Um, and I, I joined up um, uh, in combat engineers and I was going through my training and uh, I was found to be CP3 colorblind. Oh. So um, I remember getting pulled in by the platoon commander and he said, oh, you've got two options. You can you can go home like and there's no issue. And so, you know, do the paperwork and away you go or you can go six months and work in the kitchens and then you get your waiver signed and come back to combat engineers i thought oh great i'll do six months in the kitchens and and, and um and come back uh it turns out that when i got to the kitchens they said well now you've got to do 18 months before you can go back to <laughs> to, to do combat engineers so Classic uh, army oh, they got me right stitched, yep. stitched me up completely <laughs> so i kind of found myself you know um in in a in a an environment that I didn't want to be in and it was kind of this self-fulfilling prophecy for me where I'm going I'm too weak to be an engineer now right uh, mm-hmm. and, and then, I, and then I, I thought because my idea was come engineers again go into infantry and then I want to go through selection that, that kind of stuff but then it was this whole well mate yeah you're in the kitchens and 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 this is not what you want to be and mm-hmm. no passion and like one of the things that I say to people is there's some bloody hardworking people in those army kitchens and, and the people <laughs> yeah. that love it right and yeah. they love the job but if you're not passionate about it it's the last place you want to be um, and, and one, one thing we know about army catering is it's certainly not going to teach you how to cook <laughs> no, <that's right. laughs> exactly. I'm, I'm going to stand up for it I reckon I do it right oh, no I'm joking <laughs> all, all those army cooks out there <laughs> I do I love it there's would've... only two people you don't annoy in the army yeah. isn't it? <laughs> cooking the cooks <laughs> I would have oh, thought you'd, you'd need a bit of colour perception there you don't mix your carrots with your cucumbers <laughs> it depends how fashion I, I, I feel sorry for the guys that had to eat my food but um, I had a <laughs> I ended up having a good, a lot of good ratio. I was posted to the fourth battalion, um, and again, those those lessons learnt, right? I, I, I looked when I got out. Um, in the, long story short, I, I got a. Um, uh, in the end, I, I did terms time in infantry. I got to do some stuff that was fantastic. You know, got a 
qualifiers, um, you know, do parachuting, you know, I did a heap of courses at Fourth Battalion that they put me on because the guys looked after me in relation to, they, they knew I wanted to not be in the kitchens. Yeah. So um, I was very, very fortunate that I was allowed to do stuff that, um, that ticked a lot of boxes, but it was a bit of a flip side for me. It was kind of like you were so close, but then you were so back, mm. you know, and, you, and, you know, um, even going exercises with the guys, um, mm. you know, I remember going on a Croc Zero Tour Zero Three or something like that um, uh, with Charlie Company guys and, and, you know, inserting with them there and going through the motions and then you get back and you get back to the barracks and then off they go up to the hill and you go back to the kitchen, right? So mm. you kind of, mm. it was so close, but it was so far at the yeah, same yeah. time. Um, and then kind of come across here, spent a couple of years here and met so many people that are doing amazing things. But it, it got to the point where I was like, I need to, I need to get out because this is not what I want to be doing. Um, and it was almost a bit torturous. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, um, and that's where the kind of segue into the, into the correct services worked because you don't, it doesn't matter if you're colorblind to be a prison guard, right? So, <laughs> um, so, and that kind of ticked a few boxes. I got in to, you know, use the force instructing there and all that type of stuff and a hybrid. So I ticked a few boxes, but it just it didn't go the way I'd planned it to go. So I'm looking back. I'm very grateful about the opportunities I got in the military. Um, but it just as a as a 17 year old boy joining to run away to prove that you're not weak and then ending up peeling yeah. potatoes, you go. It's, it was that self fulfilling prophecy, I think, a little bit. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. So, so you're you know, 22 years of observation only. Yeah. 22 years of perhaps not doing enough for yourself. Yeah. Now with community courage, wanting to do everything for everyone else yeah. what are you doing for you yeah it's a good question so i i've had to um i've had to really talk about accepting help and and i've had to realize that for me to achieve my objectives i actually need to be in a good space myself mm. um and i think because i went from this process of of talking about it investigating get you know and, and focusing purely on this investigation process and then handing over to the police and then it's now out of my control and then I go right well that's finished so what's next community courage comes along and you and, and so many people are reaching out saying we need this needs to be fixed this is you know this has been going on for so long this is my story and, and you read stories and you go that's terrible that that happened to you and then internally you go right we've got to fix that right so yeah and then you've got this big list like you say but what I've done is um I'm actually in the best space I've been in a long, long time because I'm taking time off for myself. When when I've got my kids, I have my kids every second weekend. When I've got them, it's purely on the kids. I don't do any community courage stuff. Um, and that's important because mm-hmm. important for a number of reasons. One is because um, you know, I'm the happiest when I'm with my kids uh, and uh, and when I'm with them, they, they need mine. They deserve my full attention. But it's like a forced break from the rest of the chaos yeah. is going because they don't care about you know, anything, right? They just mm. want to play, kick the footy, kick the soccer ball, go to, you know, play centres and the beach and that type of stuff. So um, I'm going to stick to that rule, you know, that, that, that is a, that's a hard and fast rule for me now. So that's kind of the way that I'm dealing with it. Um, and also accepting that I can't respond to everyone is a big thing. That's a balance as well, right? Because people um, reach out with very personal information and... The last thing I want to do is have other people managing that for me in that in that inbox, for example. Um, but they deserve the response, but they deserve a proper response. They don't deserve a thanks, you know, thanks very much. Here's a you know, good luck kind of thing. But I've got to accept that that's that's only I've, I've scheduled my time around how much time I spend on that a week. I do three hours a week. I do an hour, three nights a week, uh, three nights a week for an hour. Mm-hmm. Um, a because. I need to be able to focus on actually considering my response to these people because mm-hmm. it's potentially the first time they've ever reached out about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and B, because 
I actually need to um, I need to make sure that that I don't set an unrealistic expectation on what I can do going forward. So, um, but that's where it comes down to accepting help. And there's there's people that are popping up through this process that have got their own really unique stories, their own awesome kind of um, process that they've gone through and it's been successful. And it's about getting them out in the spotlight and community courage. So it started off by me in front of a camera going, you know, <laughs> putting out what happened and that's what created it. But community courage is, I'm just one piece of community courage and all these people with their stories, hopefully once we get them out and about, are going to inspire other people that can assimilate a lot closer, you know. So mm-hmm. by doing that, the messages are going to, kind of get spread around. Yeah. So that's the kind of idea behind it. So looking at that and maybe to close, what, mm. what is next for both your case yeah. and your cause? Yeah. So for my case, um, essentially, uh, unfortunately, one of them is dead. So that's the that's close close mm-hmm. on that yeah. one. Um, but the second one is, is ongoing and uh, we're expecting that to, to progress through uh, pretty quickly in relation to um, uh, the the child sex abuse squad in Perth is, is done amazing work uh, and they have got their really clear concise process that they have to follow because of all the um, nuances between their collection of evidence around historical cases as a whole different scenario um, so that's going to progress and I don't want to take that one through um, and in my personal case I'm at the position now where um, I want to make a I really want to make a point out of this um, person being out there in the community 22 years later still conducting this type of activities unmonitored and unsupervised Mm -hmm. so um, I want to use my case as an opportunity to put that out there in in, in the public domain Um, and whether that impacts my case or not I accept so some advice I've had from lawyers is that shouldn't talk about anything um, because it could jeopardize and it's biased against the etc I go you know what he's convicted three times before he's done it before I know that you know this person has done this stuff End of the day, he gets six months for raping a twelve-month, twelve-year-old boy. I'm not expecting anything that the the legal system gives to this person after a successful case as being justice. Mm-hmm. I've already accepted that that is not going to be justice. So I feel like I can get more justice by openly talking about the actual issues here. Um, and uh, if that's if that if that puts bias in against him in my case, in the end, then I accept that and it's fine. So that's going to ongo. Um, for community courage, we um we're about to go headhunting for a, for a CEO to, because this is one of the big things is that, you know, it, we've got so much money. It's strange when you do business strategy, right? Because you go, I couldn't put a marketing plan together that no. would result in having people wanting no. to give you money, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, um, you know, usually you're trying to sell a service that is, you know, that you're going, you know, it's great. You want to buy it. I'll convince you you want to buy it. Whereas this is, there's no selling here. This is genuine, right? This mm. is just, this is the situation. This is the issue. And people are behind it. People are volunteering. The biggest challenge for us is actually harnessing that amount of support and putting it into something that's structured. Mm-hmm. So um, CEO to get appointed, um, we're waiting on our um, ACNC, which is the Australian Not-for-Profit and Charity Commission mm-hmm. registration for the um, deductible gift status. Yeah. Um, and once we've got that, then we will start accepting you know, um, corporate sponsorship. And that's where we want the money to come from to fund the management overhead for the charity. We want that to come from government and corporate sponsorship. I don't want to use mum and dad's money to pay for a CEO or an admin person, right? That needs to be going towards the programs that we're going to do. Um, But we need that government funding to drive the business side of things. So that's where we want to go next. We want to build on that next level of of company structure, get real solid objectives in in KPIs for that CEO and get driving on that because... 
we need people that um that don't have day jobs <laughs> to, yeah. to focus on yeah, it. Yeah. <laughs> and Mark, how do people find out more about Community Courage? Yeah, so we've got a website, which is uh, Um That's got all our information. And we're also on Facebook and, and Instagram. Um, and, um, you know, if you send us an email, um, we'll definitely get back to you. Um, it's 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 not a quick turnaround sometimes, but we we, we do appreciate all the comms so, and the, and all the inquiries. Yeah. And your story in itself is courageous, and we thank you for it. Yeah, thank you very much. No, show. thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. It's yeah, awesome, it's mate. Good. Thank you. Cheers. Cheers. We are inspired by people who are doing things bigger than themselves and know how tough it can be for those who volunteer and run charities. If this is you, we'd love to spread the word to the Unforgiving 60 community by advertising your cause on an episode for free. Just complete the short charity fact sheet on our website, www.unforgiving60.com, and we will do the rest. And while we have you, thank you for your selflessness. <laughs>